you have a Bible, you find your way over to Psalm 62. We are going through a series of psalms, three psalms, each dedicated to a man named Jejethin. The first two are written by King David, and then the third one is written by uh, Jejethin's fellow choir master named Asaph. He's the only man in all the book of Psalms that has songs dedicated to him, addressed to him, and we're here in the second one, beginning Psalm 62. Now we've all heard, and I'm sure maybe even used at some point, the phrase, that person's got their head in the sand, right? It's a saying for when someone is unwilling to recognize or acknowledge some problem or situation. They see the danger, but they refuse to confront the issue. Instead, they do what ostriches do, right? Put their heads in the ground and blindly hope for the best. Just one problem with this saying Ostriches don't bury their heads in the sand. It's a complete myth. Uh, the laws of physics should tip us off, first of all. Um, if ostriches did, in fact, bury their heads in sand, they would not be able to breathe. As living organisms, they breathe similarly to you and I. And so if you put your head in the sand, what would happen? Same thing with ostriches, believe it or not. So where did this idea come from? Well, there's a couple of suggestions National Geographic writes this, ostriches do dig holes in the dirt to use as nests for their eggs. And several times a day, a mother bird will put her head in the hole and turn the eggs. And so it can look like the birds are burying their heads in the sand. Now, the pundits and strategists of the day probably would have accused King David of burying his head in the sand during the period of time when he wrote Psalm 62. His government was vulnerable. Uh, He was under vicious attack from uh, members in his own administration. From the human perspective, his whole kingdom was close to toppling over if even the smallest amount of additional pressure was applied. Now, in the face of these circumstances, David's reaction is stillness and silence. And there's no hint of the anxiety or the depression or the desperation that characterized the last psalm we went through, right? Psalm 39, a pretty dreary psalm. They talk about it being a funeral psalm. David is clearly down in the dumps emotionally and spiritually in that psalm, but not so in this one. In this second song dedicated to Jeduthun, David's demeanor is calmness, certainty, security, hopefulness, even though his enemies had breached the castle walls and were swarming around his throne. This is a great psalm to take to bed with you or take to battle with you. It trumpets the absolute sufficiency of God whose power is without limit and whose mercy is available today for those who believe. The song breaks into three stanzas. Depending on your translation, you'll probably see it broken there into three stanzas, uh, each one broken up by the term Selah, which uh, invites us to stop and consider what was just said in the verses prior. And so we're going to take a look at the first stanza this evening in verses 1 through 4, and we're going to see there a certainty and a choice. First, in verses 1 and 2, we see the certainty. And that certainty was that the Savior is coming to save. Verse 1, to the chief musician, to Jejethin, a psalm of David, truly my soul silently waits for God, from him comes my salvation. Commentators will often call this the only psalm, not because they can't count, uh, but because David uses a poetic device here that we aren't able really to notice in the English translation. 
He begins verses 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, and 9 with the exact same Hebrew word in order to emphasize and set the tone for the song. Very deliberate. And if you and I were reading in Hebrew, I don't read Hebrew, but if you and I were reading in Hebrew, this would stand out prominently right off the page, and we sort of lose it in the English. It's this little word in Hebrew called ak, A-K. And when you bring it into the English, this word sense and location gets adjusted from sentence to sentence in the psalm. And so when you, if you, you know, page through this psalm, if you look through it for a moment here, when you read the word truly, alone, surely, only, 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 they're all the same word, this word ak. And when David uses it, it's always at the very front of the verses. And he's using this word prominently, again and again in order to convey some absolute certainties, only, some some truly only things that he wants us to think about. The first certainty is the quiet resolve of his heart to trust in God. He says, truly, my soul silently waits for God. Now, last time we were together, or the last psalm we looked at at least, Psalm 39, David was talking about what he was sure of, right? He kept saying surely and verily in that psalm too. But that time, man, it was a downer. It was, it was not cheery at all. Back in Psalm 39, all he was sure of at that point was the vanity of life, how we're all just a puff of smoke, how death's at the door. And it was, uh, it, it was a tough song. Now here his thoughts are much cheerier as he talks about the security that we find when we rest in God alone. David is no longer welling up with an overflow of frustrations like in the first song dedicated to Jejethin. Here he's able to rest just quietly in the presence of God. And you know, that kind of made me stop and think for some reason because when we think about who David was and the wealth of his wisdom, I mean, he's a man that had a lot to say right? If you were going to interview someone or if you wanted to get, you know, an interesting person, you know, on record, it was David. Uh, he's one of history's really most remarkable people. Think about it. He's an expert warrior. He's a legendary poet and musician. He's a spiritual giant. He's an incredible manager and leader. He's a premier administrator. You know, he established the systems of temple worship with the, the courses of the priests and all of that. Uh, he could have written bestsellers in all these different fields of life, right? Uh, everybody's I, on social media you're, is probably full right now with posts about the passing of Stephen Hawking, right? And they talk about the book or two that he wrote. Really, the only book that made a big cultural splash is A Brief History of Time. But imagine if that same guy could not only write a book about physics, but also about music, but also about strategy of war, but also about leadership, and also about spiritual theology. There's no people like that in the world today, right? Is there any Anybody who could write a bestseller and be a real expert, not like a phony bestseller, but a real expert who had real wisdom and knowledge, who stood out from everyone else uh, like David did? No, he had a lot, lot, lot to say. And yet we find in the Psalms, as he uh, pulls back the curtain on his personal relationship with God, we find that he made it a point to be quiet before 
the Lord. It's a theme. He talks about his soul resting. He talks about his soul being quiet, about being silent before God. We see it here in this text. You see it in Psalm 131. Those are some good examples of David's attitude. And I think it's a good reminder for us because, you know, we live in a time and in a culture that is constantly inundated with notifications and broadcasts and streams and every form of distraction. And it's, to me, best illustrated by, you know, if you, if you channel through the news channels, what do you see most often? You see this, the screen split into four boxes, right? And there's a head in each box. And what are they all doing? Are they all listening quietly and patiently to one another? They're all shouting at one another, right? No one's listening. No one can hear. Everybody's talking over everybody else. And we, the, we, the viewers, are sitting there thinking, yeah, this is normal. That's a great sort of slice or snapshot of what our culture and our time is about. It's everybody yelling, nobody listening, nobody being quiet and waiting, uh, you know, to hear what someone else might have to say. That's sort of our world. But if this was good and needful for David to be still and quiet before God, to, to purposefully quiet his heart before the Lord in his, you know, uh, personal life, well, then it's good and needful for us as well. And we remember that Jesus said what to his disciples after they had been out doing ministry and they came back and they were all amped up and it was in uh, Mark chapter six. And what did he say to them? He said, hey, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And Jesus is a great example of this, not just telling us to do it, but when he was on the earth, he did this too. He was often withdrawing by himself to some deserted place in order to commune with the Lord. Now, David goes on here and says, from him, from God, comes my salvation. He is absolutely certain that God is coming to rescue and that the Lord is the source of our salvation. It's from him. It's not that God verifies our efforts and then pays us what we've earned for salvation, right? You have not earned salvation. I have not earned salvation. Not in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you never could, no matter what. And we, we saw in the last Psalm, right? The best person on all the earth is like a nothing puff of smoke before the holy, powerful God, right? And so salvation is not something that you earn. It's not something that, um, you know, the Lord recognizes and says, oh yeah, you should get this. No, it is a gift from God. From him comes my salvation, And he is absolutely certain that it is God who is coming to the rescue and that it is the Lord who is the source of salvation. Uh, Salvation is not like getting your parking validated, in other words, right? You go somewhere and as long as you do certain things, as long as you shop in certain stores, you can then bring back the receipt, okay, we validated your parking, you can get out without paying your fee. Well, salvation isn't like that. It's a gift of grace. And David here is certain of God's salvation, which then empowers him to enjoy a soul undaunted by his circumstances. He can sit in silence, waiting for God, despite what's going on in the palace all around him. Because David is in right relationship with the Lord, and he knows that God loves him, and that God cares for the details of his life, and that God will not abandon him. And so, uh, in powerful contrast to the last song we looked at, David can kind of take a look at his life and say, you know what? I have rest and security and satisfaction in my God. I've got all these things going on and all these enemies are, you know, scaling the wall and surrounding my throne here. But man, I know that the Lord is coming with his salvation. And so 
it begs the question for us, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? David said, I'm waiting for the Lord and for his salvation that comes from him. And so what are we waiting for? Maybe we're thinking, well, I'm waiting for that check in the mail, or I'm waiting for that call on the phone, or I'm waiting for that reversal of fortune in some way or another. And hey, those things might be a part of God's will for your life, but David would preach this to us tonight, wait for the Savior rather than the circumstances. He wasn't waiting for his enemies to be gone. He was just waiting for the Lord. And he knew that the Lord would care for him and would defend him and do all of these things. And so rest in the salvation that God has provided for you. Now, what is his salvation? Well, David tells us in verse 2, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And so God himself is the salvation that we need. He reveals himself to mankind and then invites us to come away with him and be forever safe in his love. That's what salvation is about. The Lord comes and he says, hey, it's me. I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you relationship with me and I'm bringing you in to be part of my family. I'm going to make you children of God. We're going to have this incredible personal relationship together. That's what I'm giving you. Um, you know, God isn't the kind of rescuer, isn't the kind of hero that just sort of swoops in for a moment and then takes off as soon as the bad guy is knocked out, right? Um, he's Boaz, not Batman. That's the difference. You know, we're, we're impressed by Batman, right? Because he's, you know, in one way powerful and he comes in and he swoops out of nowhere and he beats guys up, but then he's gone, right? Batman doesn't come home with you usually. Uh, He doesn't abide with you. He doesn't really, you know, include you in his life. He doesn't better your life. He just rescues you for a moment in time. But that's not who God is. God isn't Batman. He's Boaz. Yeah, great story of the kinsman redeemer who uh, not only solves these great issues in the life of, you know, Ruth the Moabitess, but brings her into his own household and and loves her and makes something out of her life which was worth nothing as someone outside of the covenant family of God, right? And so the Lord is the rock that we are to fasten ourselves to and build our lives upon. Uh, David said, hey, the Lord's my rock. And Jesus obviously talked about that as well. We think of the parable of the man who built his home on the rock, right? Versus the man who built his home on the sand. And so this is a familiar picture. Uh, It's a picture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's something that the Lord wants us to get. Yeah, fasten yourself to me. I'm the rock. And you're going to build on me. You're going to cling to me. and, And you're going to be in really great shape. You're not going to be greatly moved. Now, if we were reading all the Psalms in order, you know, we would see a great connection between this verse and the one in the previous Psalm. I'll put it up. We have it up on the screen for you, I think. David wrote this in Psalm 61, verse 2. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And so in that psalm, we see David praying in a time of great distress, right? The characteristics or the demeanor of that psalm is a lot different than the one we're in right now, right? You sense that desperation, you sense that danger, you sense that 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 anxiety uh, in David's words there. 
and his demeanor in Psalm 61 is a little more like it was back in our set of studies in Psalm 39. And here's his request in that verse, Lord, lead me to your rock where I can be safe and where I can be secure. That rock that's higher than I. And now we get to Psalm 62 and what do we see? We see the Lord has done just that very thing. David is safe and secure on that very rock, the Lord himself. And because of that, David says he's not going to be greatly moved. And that term there means shaken or swayed or caused to stagger. When we take refuge in Jesus Christ and in his salvation, well, he is sufficient to secure us. Uh, Jude says, all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling. It doesn't just apply to one or two people. It applies to everybody. You know, oftentimes in uh, terrible calamities, when rescuers go in, you know, they're not always able to get everybody out. It's some pretty remarkable thing when they say, hey, we got everybody out of this building. We got everybody off of that ship. We got everybody out of that mudslide. That doesn't really happen, right? Well, that's not how it is with the Lord. He gets everybody out who calls out for rescue, right? He's able to keep everyone from falling, everyone from being, um, uh, from staggering, And David is certain of that. He rests in that. He finds satisfaction in his heart in that. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see the certainty of David. He's certain. He gives a report on the security of God and his resolve to wait on the Lord. Now in verses 3 and 4, David is going to give a reprimand of the iniquity of the wicked men around him. He says in verse 3, How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Now, the wording in the New King James here is a little bit awkward. When David uses the illustrations of a leaning wall and a tottering fence, most of the scholars feel that he's referring to himself, not to his attackers, just to give some clarity there. It seems that he was really vulnerable from a human perspective, like truly vulnerable. And these men around him sensed their opportunity and they launched an extended attack against the king. We don't know uh, what particular situation this was, Maybe it was the rebellion of Absalom. Maybe it was a different time, but uh, that's what's going on in his physical circumstances. Here, David gives a prophecy to these men. He says, you know what? You're going to die. And guess what? That's a prophecy you can share with everybody as one of God's people. I mean, uh, we, can, we have it on good authority that everybody's going to die, right? You're going to die. I'm going to die. The strangers you meet, they are going to die. Now here, David invokes a specific prophecy to these guys. He says, You're, you shall be slain, all of you. And so he's, he's telling them, hey, you guys are in trouble. You, you guys got some real problems because God is going to judge you and he's going to kill you uh, in this specific circumstance. But for us, it's a reminder that in the end, no one will escape the judgment of God. No one. No one's going to escape. Uh, you know, he, he drives that home there where he says, all of you. You're going to be slain, all of you. And we're reminded that no one escapes the judgment of God. We can either be judged at the cross, where the verdict is mercy, or you'll be judged at the great white throne, where the only verdict is guilty. There's no other appeal, there's no other option, and the only outcome is the second death. Right? You get judged at the cross, the verdict is mercy, the outcome is life. You're judged at the great white throne, no verdict other than guilty, everybody dies at the great white throne, enters the second death. You read about that in the book of the Revelation. 
Now, David here asked these guys outright, how long are you going to keep this up? And if verse 1 begged the question of what Christians are waiting for, I'd say this verse begs the question to unbelievers, how long are you going to war with God? How long are you going to fight the Lord? To reject Jesus Christ is to rage against the God who loves you and who doesn't want you to perish. How long are you going to fight against him? How long are you going to try to scale this wall and and pull him down, especially with your eternal life on the line? Now, just a little rabbit trail here for a moment. Obviously, we don't know all of the timeline details of this, but David was a guy who was regularly writing psalms, delivering them over to the workers in the temple to be used for what? Corporate worship. And we know from the context here, we're going to see in the next verse in a moment, that it seems that the enemies he's talking about are guys in his own administration, guys in the palace who have regular interaction and access to him. And can you imagine him, you know, sealing up the scroll, sending it over to Jejuthun and say, hey, sing this on Sabbath. We're all going to sing this together. And, and the people are gathered together, and David and his cabinet, they come there into the tabernacle. It's time to sing. It's time for the morning worship. And they start singing this song. And these guys are singing this song, and they get to these verses written about them, and they know it's about them. They know who they are. They know that they're conspiring against the king. And so even though the words in one sense are harsh and David's calling down or at least identifying the judgment of God, what a gracious thing that he's preaching to them and saying, hey, how long are you going to keep this up? While there's life, there's hope. You can repent. You can turn back from this rebellion and from this betrayal and from this iniquity. Turn back to the Lord and let me talk to you about how merciful God is. Let me talk to you about how powerful God is. Let me talk to you about the salvation of God. But I just... Who knows if he sang it with these guys, but part of me thinks that, yeah, they, they got to Sabbath one day, and it was probably a, a pretty interesting service for some of these fellows. But verse 4, we continue. David says, they, speaking of these, these guys, they only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse Inwardly, And so here we infer that the uh, attackers are, in fact, people close to the king who have access to him, who give him lip service in the palace while plotting to overthrow him. And they remind us of, of the Pharisees in the Gospels, right, who would come and, and pretend in front of Jesus, say things like, oh, good teacher, and all the while plotting, uh, you know, to murder the king of kings. And so uh, human nature doesn't change. Uh, these guys still had their eyes on the throne. And in a way, they're just demonstrating for us what he, all of human nature is apart from God. Uh, a desire to topple the king off the throne and put ourselves there in his place, right? But God's not going to be mocked. He says, no, the throne belongs to me. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will conf- confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How about you do that in this life so that you can be saved and so that you can enter into eternity uh, and into glory? Now, David says they were cursing him inwardly. To curse here suggests they were invoking divine harm on David. Ironically, the same God who these guys were hoping would attack David with them was the very one protecting him from them. He was David's defense. And rather than assist these evil men in their wicked endeavor, God was going to slay them for their wickedness. And so these guys just remind me a lot of uh, the Pharisees of the Gospels, the legalists of the book of Acts, and some other characters like that. Now remember, David had previously asked the Lord to lead him to the rock that is higher, Psalm 61. 
Now in this song, we see David pictured as high up on the rock, safe and secure. His enemies are working overtime, working hard to try to pull him down. But what they didn't realize is that to get to David, they would have to go through the rock itself. They would have to go through Jehovah and it wasn't going to work. The only outcome was going to be their own deaths. But not if they, like David, surrendered to God and fell on his mercy. He's going to uh, talk about the compassion and the mercy of God later in the psalm as we go through it. Um, Our God's a God of grace, even for the chief of sinners. Grace for a man like Paul, right? Who, who, you know, savaged the church and killed Christians and was this, you know, terrible, terrible man. And yet there's grace for a man like that and for people like us. So if verses 1 and 2 present a certainty, which they do, I would say that verses 3 and 4 present to the reader a choice. The choice is simple, saved or slain. Those are the two categories here. You have a couple characters represented in the psalm. You have God, you have the psalmist, David, and then you have the enemies of the psalmist. It says, God is my salvation. I'm going to be saved. You're going to be slain. That's the binary choice for you. Would you like door number one or door number two? And so a person can be secure on the rock or they can be slain by the rock. We're told in Matthew 21, when the rock, the chief cornerstone, falls on someone, they are crushed and ground into powder. Or you can anchor yourselves on the rock, build your lives on his foundation with his provision. And if we do that, we will never be shaken. Pretty simple choice. That's a choice set before every man and woman on the earth. What are you going to choose? What's this relationship? What relationship are you going to have to the rock? The rock that's higher than you. The king above all kings. He's more than ready, more than happy to invite you into his family, make you a co-inheritor, right? And if you reject him, well, then you rage against the God who loves you. And in the end, you're going to be judged. There's no way of escaping it. There's a 58-story building in San Francisco called the Millennium Tower. Has anybody seen the Millennium Tower by chance? You might have if you've been up in the Bay. It's meant to be a symbol of luxury and success. It offers the most expensive one-bedroom dwelling in the whole city, and that's saying something in San Francisco. Joe Montana has a residence there, you 49ers fans. Just two, 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 two little problems with the Millennium Tower. Uh, it's leaning and sinking. A little bit of a problem. You know, they, they, I was reading some interesting things about it. You know, they expect some skyscrapers, obviously, are big, huge buildings. They weigh a billion pounds, all this kind of stuff. They expect they're going to sink a little bit and saw that, you know, they expected this one skyscraper over here to, over its lifetime, maybe sink three inches. Well, the Millennium Tower is a few years old. It's, it has sunk 16 inches into the ground already. And it's pitching to the southeast in a Uh, somewhat dramatic way if you're an architect. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we wouldn't notice it, but uh, people who understand, you know, math and trigonometry and things are thinking, "We, we got a real problem here. The building was constructed on unstable mud fill. And here's a quote, to cut costs, the Millennium Tower did not drill piles into bedrock, rather just 80 feet into dense sand. At this point, there's not really anything that can be done other than some band-aid measures that do not solve the underlying flaw. They're talking about pumping some concrete underneath for a little while, but that's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to fix the original issue. Now, I don't want to live in a building like that. Who here is going to go buy? Joe Montana is trying to sell his uh, apartment there. 
$4 million, it can be yours. $4 million for a building that could come down. It's like a leaning fence. It's a tottering wall, right? Are you going to live in that building? I'm not going to live in that building and be on the cover of Time magazine one day. No one wants to live in a building like that. And you know what? God doesn't want us to live in lives like that either. David's experience, we see him secure on this rock above his circumstances, enjoying just this great satisfaction in the Savior. His experience is one that's available to all of God's people. It's not just set aside for one or two. The Lord says, yeah, this is what I want for my people. God has led us to the rock that is higher than ourselves, higher than the problems of this life, one that is strong and secure. That rock is Christ. And when we cleave to him, we can know his sufficient salvation, so great a salvation, Hebrews calls it, and trust that he will defend us even when we're at our weakest moments. There's a whole other great you know, set of thoughts about how God came and defended David and scooped David up into his arms at his weakest of moments. Now, maybe you don't feel that sort of security like David does here in your heart tonight. Uh, you're a Christian, but you lack that assurance that David is demonstrating here. You're more like David in Psalm 39 a couple weeks ago than so- David in Psalm 62. And you know what? That's all right. That's a, a, a part of the human experience. That's not what God wants for us, but that's reality, right? On this side of heaven, we don't always feel that certainty and that assurance that the Bible talks about and that we want to have. And so if that's the case, okay, well then what should I do? Lord, what should I do? You know, I began by talking about the ostrich, how it doesn't put its head in the ground when it's afraid. Here's what an ostrich does do in those dangerous situations. According to the San Diego Zoo, it says, when an ostrich senses danger and cannot run away, it flops to the ground and remains still with its head and neck flat on the ground in front of it. And, you know, I think that's a good picture for our souls, a good set of instruction for our souls. David said in Psalm 131, I have calmed and quieted my soul. He made the choice to lay down and rest in quietness on his rock, right? The rock that God had led him to. He said, Lord, lead me to the rock. And the Lord did that very thing. And then David said, okay, I'm going to choose to just be an ostrich for real. I'm going to lay down flat and remain still and just anchor myself to this rock. Uh, He made a choice there, and he made a choice here in our text to wait for the Lord, to fall down and be still and rely upon his Savior. And so tonight, if you feel a lack of certainty or security or assurance, pray the prayer that we find in the Gospels. It's just one of my favorite things to read in the Gospels or to think about when, when that dad says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What a great prayer, a prayer of the, of the mind and the heart, right? Where, where we think, man, Lord, I, I do believe and I have this faith and Lord, I love you. There is, you know, a lack of that certainty or that security that I'm feeling in my heart. And the Lord's not angry about that, but let's pray that prayer to him. If you're feeling that lack or you're feeling that anxiety, like David was demonstrating back in the last Psalm we studied or in Psalm 61, okay, pray a prayer like that. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and choose to exercise your faith, right? If you're a Christian, you have faith, faith in a Savior. So exercise that faith and say, I believe. I'm going to wait for my Savior who's coming with salvation in his hand. He's a great and mighty rock. He will not fail you. 
We're not putting our heads in the sand. We're putting our heads in the Savior, right? That's the idea. And we're believing he is who he says that he is and that he will do what he's promised to do. Amen?